0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Screenplay. Based on a true story. Working title. Dark. Water. Fade in. Exterior. Night. March 1928. Establishing shot of St. Francis Dam. The evening is still. Cut to a road overlooking the dam. Into frame, a motorcycle pulls up. Lit by the moon, a young man dismounts and with his back to camera, lights a cigarette gazing at the dam. He exhales a stream of smoke. Cut to bedroom of two small children sleeping. The boy clutches a teddy. The girl has her thumb in her mouth. Close on bedside clock, 10 minutes to midnight. Cut to St. Francis Dam, control room. Close up, of voltage meter. Needle is steady, then drops suddenly. Cut to, close on small crack in concrete through which a trickle of water flows. The water flow increases. Aerial shot of dam. Further large cracks appear. Water flows from multiple places. The whole dam appears to shake. Cut to, control room. Warning lights and buzzers sound. Cut to, motorcyclist. ground shaking beneath him terrified, he mounts his motorcycle and rides away. You think the sleeping kids is too much? In 1928, California's largest dam came crashing down, killing hundreds of souls. Many swept right out into the vast Pacific. It was a catastrophe of epic proportions, and it was a catastrophe worthy of the godlike figure who presided over it. His name? William Mulholland. Oh, me? I'm the writer, and I've got a story to tell. A story about the people who came West. I've known them all. I've sat and listened to their big dreams. And I always know the ones who are going to make it. And I know the ones who won't. The ones who'll die trying. So Mulholland. He arrived in L.A. from Ireland half a century earlier. The population of L.A. back then, just 9,000. Mulholland had a vision, a dream of turning a town into a city, and a city into a metropolis. He glimpsed the future. There was just one problem. Water. Los Angeles was a desert with just 15 inches of rainfall a year, and even the Garden of Eden needs water. Cut to the present day, Lake Hollywood high above Los Angeles. A car pulls up. Out steps a woman. A distinguished columnist for the LA Times. In the hills behind her, the Hollywood sign. In front, LA stretches out, shimmering in the haze. The woman is Pat Morrison.
2: I'm sure you've heard the Mark Twain quote that in the West, whiskey's for drinking and water is for fighting over. Here, because of the scarcity of it, the fighting over water, the manipulation of water, the premium that's put on water. In the early days of the city of Los Angeles, the Zanjero, the man who tended the water supply, earned more money than the mayor, which gives you an idea of how significant this was. People stole water from other people. There were fights, there were gunfights over water in the early days of Los Angeles.
0: Our man Mulholland had the answer, but it was 200 miles away and it would bring a whole lot of trouble. Okay, let's build a little tension here. Exterior, day. Owens Valley, wide shot. Overlooked by the snow-capped Sierra Nevada, a swollen river runs through a verdant landscape. Sun glints off the fast-flowing water. After a moment, Mulholland's car pulls into frame. It stops facing the river. Mulholland gets out. He looks around, checking nobody is watching him. He reaches through the car window and pulls out a rolled-up map. He spreads it out on the hood of his car. Close on, map. We see dotted red lines and arrows. In large block capitals, we see the word, diversion. Pull back. Now let's make it look like someone is watching through binoculars. A binocular vignette. Yes, nice. From a distance of 300 yards away across the valley, coming gradually into focus, we look back on Mulholland. He's being watched. Yeah, I like that. The mayor of L.A. had already hatched a plan to divert the Owens River and build a 200-mile aqueduct down to L.A., the longest pipeline in the world. Mulholland's task was to build it. Enigmatic and taciturn, they nicknamed him the chief. And the chief knew none of this would be easy or popular. He knew there would be opposition, big opposition. But hell it would make money. A lot of money. So Mulholland's backers lied. They lied and lied again.
2: The city fathers saw that they wanted more water for a bigger city. The city of Los Angeles already had a water supply. For millions of years, there had been water in Los Angeles underground. But the city, shall we call them the city fathers or the city manipulators, the Dr. Frankensteins of Los Angeles, putting this creature together, said they're going to need more. So there was political manipulation. There were dark dealings in dark corners, and there is no question about it. There were very shady fortunes made in Los Angeles.
0: To build his aqueduct, Mulholland's acolytes bought up all the necessary land, fobbing off the farmers with some bull about being in the cattle business. Some say Mulholland and his co-conspirators even engineered an artificial drought to convince taxpayers to cough up. But the plans for the aqueduct couldn't be kept secret forever. When locals realized they'd been conned into selling their biggest asset to supply L.A. with water, they took action. They went to war. Exterior, Los Angeles, day. Mulholland turns off onto a winding road. Camera pans as his car disappears up a driveway with grass banks on both sides, deep green, and Mulholland's home comes into view. Crane shot of his home. Grand, white, stuccoed, immaculate with classical columns. The car sweeps round on a graveled path. The distant sound of the surf can be heard. He gets out. The large door is opened from inside by a butler. Balanced in his left palm, a silver tray on which there's a white envelope. Mulholland snatches the envelope and disappears inside the house. Interior. Mulholland's wood-paneled study. Mulholland grabs a letter opener and impatiently tears open the envelope. Close on letter. Two typewritten words. You're dead. Those scandals swirled around Mulholland at the time. He ducked and dived. Before the plans had been made public, L.A.'s biggest businessmen were given a heads up. They pulled out their pocketbooks and snapped up land in the valley where the pipeline was due to end. And miraculously, the desert scrub transformed into prime farmland. It was payday for the new landowners. The huge windfalls cemented the power of L.A.'s ruling elite, backed by the all-powerful L.A. Times. And so the once-fertile Owens Valley turned to dust. All that water-fed L.A.'s growth, and L.A. grew and grew and grew. And the brand-new railroads transported all those newcomers to a paradise where the sun always shone, and every day promised endless possibilities, just as long as you were white. Cut to today. Watts, Los Angeles, one of the oldest neighborhoods of the city, now a low-income area. A car drives at high speed, performing handbrake turns. There's a heavy police presence. Watts train station, next to it, a level crossing. The original wooden ticket office still stands. It dates to 1904, when the new Pacific Railroad first brought hopeful new settlers to L.A., scores of them, all searching for a better life. A woman sits on a bench near the station.
1: The early African-American migrants to L.A. came from the Deep South, especially those places where cotton was king.
0: The woman is Karen Stanford of California State University.
1: When they arrived in L.A., there were whites who were very, very concerned about maintaining some semblance of separation, maintaining their white utopia. And so in order to make sure that African-Americans... And whites did not reside in the same communities. They devised several tactics. Financial institutions and insurance companies refused to lend money to African Americans. In contracts, they would actually say alien groups such as Negroes or Mexicans cannot purchase this particular property. The Ku Klux Klan engaged in violence
0: to drive black people away. And yet, who was building this utopia? Who do you think?
1: About 90% of those workers that laid that track and maintained that track of the Pacific Electric Railway were Mexican.
0: Al Camarillo of Stanford University. Coincides with the, the period of the Mexican Revolution, so a huge portion
1: of the Mexican population, actually estimated to be a tenth of the entire population of Mexico, comes to the American Southwest. And in a place like California, they are the largest racial minority by the 1920s. And although Mexicans weren't categorized as low as African Americans, they were just a notch above them. Couldn't go to the swimming pools, could go to the parks, could go to barbershops, couldn't go to restaurants and find a
0: sign. Everywhere they walked, no Mexicans allowed. And yet, in spite of the racism, in spite of the segregation, California still held out the promise of a better life for black and brown migrants.
1: When W.E.B. Du Bois comes to Los Angeles in 1913, he marvels at the opportunities for African Americans here and marvels at what they've made of their lives in their community after migrating here. And he says, wow, is nowhere else in the country black people better housed. Black people are becoming educated. So black people saw it as a possible utopia for them as well. But they had to fight in various ways in order to make it so.
0: So yes, L.A. grew and grew and grew. And before long, of course, it needed more water, which our man Mulholland was only too happy to engineer. You can't doubt the man's genius. Everything that followed, L.A., the megacity, he made possible. But be in no doubt, L.A. was a town built on lies.
2: There's no question about how significantly Mulholland changed the landscape. The fact that people live in neighborhoods that have trees. More than half of the water used in the city of Los Angeles goes outdoors to the garden and not to what's going on inside the house. But, as Balzac said, behind every great fortune there's a great crime, We are standing atop the Hollywood Reservoir called Lake Hollywood, more picturesquely. It sounds better than Reservoir, doesn't it? It was built in 1924 by William Mulholland, one of the triumphs of his engineering career as the man who quenched the thirst of the city of Los Angeles. And yet, four short years later, a dam that he built much farther north from where we stand right now collapsed the St. Francis Dam, taking the dam and hundreds of lives with it and collapsing as well the reputation of William Mulholland.
0: And in California, the fight over water would never end. Cut to a man sitting in a high-rise apartment. Behind him, through a large picture window, a panorama of San Francisco's steep streets stretches out. The man is California's longest-serving governor, Jerry Brown. As I drove down to this meeting, I looked out at a field in northern California, and there was a vast field of new almond trees. Even though California is overpumping its water resources, people are drilling wells and are taking water that's been there for thousands of years, and they're taking the water out to grow crops and then to export them to the world. Well, I've signed a law to manage groundwater. People are going to have to stop overdrafting. They're only going to take out as much as comes in every year through rain and snowfall. We have to learn to confront and live harmoniously within limits. Moholland had discovered his limits. With all his rich friends and connections, he escaped prosecution. But for the man they once called the chief, it was over. His power gone. Moholland disappeared into unhappy obscurity, just faded away. In California, your luck can run out just when you thought it would never end. Next time, they call her sister Amy a celebrity preacher who borrowed from Hollywood spread the word of God until she went for a swim one day and vanished. Seems it never rains in California. The Californian Century is narrated by me, Stanley Tucci. The academic consultant is Dr. Ian Scott of Manchester University. Sound is by John Boland, and the editor is Philip Sellers. It's a BBC Radio Documentaries unit production for BBC Radio 4. The series is written and produced by Lawrence Grissel.
1: Our stories begin, as so many do, with a body.
0: I place the blade on a PM40, which is like a huge scalpel.
1: Mortician Carla Valentine takes you from the mortuary to the scene of a crime to find out how a body got to her slab.
0: People think fires destroy everything. What they don't realise is that actually fires don't necessarily get rid of all of the evidence.
1: Mortem, subscribe to the podcast on BBC Sounds.